0: Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, brought to you by the team from the environmental policy magazine The End Report. In this episode, we'll discuss the fallout from the government's decision to ditch the deadline to scrap retained EU laws. We'll take a look at the policies that might form part of the Labour Party's next general election manifesto, and we'll give you the lowdown on the first successful prosecution under new peat burning rules. Then, in this episode's Deep Dive, we'll be taking a roller coaster ride through the topsy-turvy world of environmental politics with Ruth Chambers, Senior Fellow at Greener UK. So, without further ado, let's enter the Eco Chamber. I'm Jamie Carpenter, and I'm here with Tess Colley and Pippa Neal. For our first story of this episode's Big Green News section, we're going to take a look at the latest developments with the government's controversial retained EU Law Bill. There has been an awful lot going on in the last week or so, so much so it's difficult to know where to start. That means if you enjoy hearing about rule, you're in for a real treat. But if you don't, you might want to hit the fast forward button. The dropping of the sunset clause is probably a good place to start as any. Um, as, as everyone's probably all too familiar with by now, one of the key provisions of the bill was a sunset clause. And the plan was, at the end of this year, all UK legislation derived from the EU that was retained on the UK statute book at the point of Brexit would be revoked en masse. And this this means thousands of pieces of law. But last week, it emerged that this sunset clause would actually be dropped. Tess, could you tell us more, please?
1: Yes. So the the Sunset Clause Act has been given the axe itself, um, at least for now, and at least for most laws originating from the EU. Uh, last week, Trade Secretary Kimmy Badenoch said the government was getting rid of the sunset clause due to the uh, risks of legal uncertainty that it created, she said. Um, the, the Financial Times had reported shortly before the announcement that, that she told Tory MPs at a private meeting uh, for the European Research Group, um, which had, had a big role to play in, in Brexit, um, that plans to improve old EU laws could, could not be rushed. And apparently this went down like, an in quotation marks from an unnamed MP, like a lead balloon. Um, however there are there are 600 laws that the government has singled out in a new amendment which it says will still expire at the end of this year so that's where we're at
0: okay great so um, Pippa what what do we know about those 600 regulations or laws that the government wants to wants to now scrap at the end of the year are they laws that could be scrapped without causing any any problems or are, are people actually concerned about this
2: So alongside the list of the 600 laws, um, the government published a document kind of outlining the reasons why it um, plans to revoke them. Um, And kind of from first looking, it all appears quite technical and it's quite hard to understand exactly what the implications are. But there is one area that has sparked specific concern, and that's with plans to revoke Regulations 9 and 10 from the National Emission Ceiling Regulations 2018. Um, And these regulations set legally binding emission reduction commitments for 2020 and 2030 for five key air pollutants. And regulation nine states that the Secretary of State must prepare and implement a national air pollution control program to limit emissions in accordance with the emission reduction commitments. I'm sorry, it's a bit of a mouthful, lots of long, long words. Um, But yeah, so this is a bit of a strange one, because the government isn't isn't proposing to scrap the emission reduction commitments altogether, but potentially it's like planning to remove critical parts of the regime that supports these targets. Um, And I spoke to Katie Neild, who's a clean air lawyer at Klein Earth. And she told me that this is in quotes, a major concern. And she said it could massively undermine the government's accountability um, for action to meet this target. Um, And she she said, you know, it's hard to see that this could be anything other than an attempt to, in quotes, skirt accountability. Um, and it was quite interesting that in its reasoning for evoking these two um, regulations, nine and 10, the government said that the current format of the National Air Pollution Control Plan is long, complicated, resource intensive and duplicative and does nothing to improve the air we breathe. Um So it's quite a strong line and I'm, you know, I'm not sure that lawyers or green groups would agree, but um, anyway, it's definitely one to watch um, and kind of a key area of concern at the moment.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I I guess there's, there were um, dozens of of environment related laws that were listed. And I suppose there'll there'll be a a load of people now from, from green NGOs who will be trawling through those to, to try and find out whether there are any, any other issues like those. Um, but but Tess, it it, it it kind of looks at the habitats regulations and the water framework directive are off off the chopping block for now, which people obviously were con- really concerned about. Is is that a, a genuine reprieve, or or are campaigners still worried about them?
3: Well.
1: Yes and no. Richard Broadbent, who is the environmental law director at law firm Freeds, described the list of those laws which will still be revoked as comprising largely of outdated, low-hanging fruit. And certainly the snap reaction of green groups that I speak to is that there's no glaring red flags other than the one um, about the air regulations. Um and the Habitat regulations and the Water Framework Directive, they're particularly core bits of environmental law. Uh, and it wasn't expected they'd be done away with entirely um, by the retained EU law bill, but we know the government are very keen at the very least to amend them. Um, so to have nothing from them singled out has been welcomed, but it's a tired welcome because the thing is, the draft bill still hands ministers the ability, the ability to scrap EU-derived laws at a future time with no real parliamentary scrutiny um, in a and they they have to, it, it gives ministers the power to amend things as long as they don't add to a regulatory burden, which is a phrase which is causing all sorts of discussion. Um, also, to note that the bill, as drafted, will still give greater freedom to courts to depart from retained EU case law um, once the bill is passed. So, the idea that dropping the sunset clause creates greater certainty is not, you know, it's not it's not entirely the case. It's kind of it's it's taken the intense imminent pressure off. Uh, but lean lawyers are still unsure what's going to happen down the line, and businesses too. So, it's it's not genuine reprieve.
0: No, no, and I guess there's still there's still a whole load of uncertainty about amazingly how many retained EU laws there actually are. I think that mm-hmm. there, there was a another update to the retained EU law dashboard, which was launched I think a while ago by Jacob Rees-Mogg and Defra. Amazingly, lost a thousand EU. EU laws, and then and then seem to be given twenty five back without any explanation. So, um, I think there's a whole a whole other other question around um, transparency and and um, mm. understanding what these laws are and and what the implications are if they actually go.
1: Yeah, I mean the way they fluctuate on this government dashboard with no real explanation, like it doesn't give you great faith that. Someone's, you know, on top of what's going on here, and it makes it hard for any out- outsiders also to to track what's happening. And the way this particular announcement was made about the sunset clause being being dropped in this new list of um, things to be revoked, I mean that came on on Thursday afternoon when the bill was due to return to the Lords the following Monday. That's today, the day we're talking. This has been a matter of days. Um, and this is massive list with hardly any time for people to scrutinize it and at the time there was also no of none of this explanatory material which was published uh, yesterday. So it's just left people trying to work out what the government wants to do just sort of by reading just trying to guess at it. it's it's not It's not. It's not very transparent.
0: No, it's no no way to run a country, is it? Really. <laughs> and then in the final twist with retaining EU law, there may well have been more while we're on air. But um, the government suffered a series of defeats in the Lords over over the bill um, when, when it sat on Monday. Um, Pippa, can you tell us a bit more about the amendments that the government was de- defeated on, please? So
2: there are three amendments to talk about. Um, and the first one is one that was tabled by crossbench peer Lord Hope of Craighead, um, which is to provide for the referral of the list in the government's schedule to a joint committee of both houses. Um, and he said that in the event that the committee finds that, that any item of legislation that is being revoked represents a substantial change of the law, the amendment requires that that revocation be debated on the floor of each um, house and then voted on. Um, And this was passed by 245 votes to 154. Um, And another amendment, which is Amendment 48, um, seeks to enshrine existing environmental safeguards into the bill. Um, So this would create additional conditions to be satisfied before laws can be revoked, um, where the subject matter concerns law relating to environmental protection or food standards. Um, and this was also passed by 142 votes to 132. And the final amendment, Amendment 15, states that if both Houses of Parliament, the Scottish Parliament or the Northern Ireland Assembly resolve that a right power, liability, obligation, restriction, remedy or procedure identified in the schedule of laws to be revoked by the end of 2023 be retained, it is not then to be revoked but at the end of 2023. Um, and this amendment was passed by 222 votes to 154.
0: Okay, thanks, Pippa. Um, I mean, I, I guess one of the questions now is whether whether or not the government seeks to then overturn those amendments when the bill returns to the commons. And it, it might not be a great look for it if, if it wants to um, overturn the one related to environmental safeguards. What, what, what do you think about that, Tess?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting place they've got themselves into having publicly vowed not to weaken environmental standards and com- repeatedly stating that when they've been questioned on it. Um, and now the laws have forced this amendment to be considered, which gives that c- commitment some strength and legal standing. So fighting it will be an interesting PR challenge and one I look forward to observing. Because uh, they did dig their heels in and the laws stand unless there's a big change of heart, I think, in, in number 10. I expect they will try, uh, you know, she's try to overturn them. Um, I think the the brexity backbenchers will be putting they will be putting pressure on mm. on the government to not not give way but you know we we didn't know if the sunset clause would be dropped either and it has been so let's see
0: yeah yeah certainly um plenty to be keeping an eye on over the next few weeks um okay well i think that, i think that's plenty of uh, discussion about retaining you law for now i'm sure it will be back on a future podcast um so moving on we're going to talk next about the opposition's emerging green policies and um there has been a feeling, I think, that Labour hasn't actually said a great deal so far about its environmental policies. But but in the latest episode of the podcast, we talked about the party's plan for regulating the water industry, and now there's been the leak of, um, of an initial draft of Labour's national policy platform. Um, Tess, can you tell us a bit about the significance of the document and um, what it says? Mm.
1: So this document... That's been leaked. It was drafted by Labour's National Policy Forum, a body responsible for shaping the Labour Party's policy agenda. Uh, it was first leaked to a media outlet called Labour List, but I've also got hold of a copy and have read it. Um, it brings together six individual policy documents, and they're all subject to amendments, I should say, and it will go to final approval at Labour's party conference. Um, but. That This draft states that it will inform Labour's policy proposals ahead of the next general election. Uh, so it's an interesting read, although the party's been keen to emphasise that it's very much a draft document. Mm. Um, a number of the policies in terms of the environment have already been announced by the party. And it does sort of, when you read them one by one, you think they have actually announced quite a few things, even though there is like, like there is this sense that they haven't said much. I think um, when you see it all down in one place, they They have done. Uh, This is things such as toughening the regulatory framework around the water industry and investment in renewables. This is all stuff they said before, but we've got a bit more detail. Something I thought was new was something they say about, uh, in order to turbocharge the green industry and the way Labour has talked about wanting to do, this draft document says the party will look at, I'm quoting now, Tackling planning barriers to renewable energy projects, getting planning decision timelines down from years to just months and removing obstacles that are currently preventing businesses from investing in the UK. There's no further detail given, but, you know, whatever that means to get planning decision timelines down to just months. When I And mean, this is, I'm old enough to remember when Liz Truss suggested in the investment, you know, investment mm. zones that kind of sc- really changing the planning regime, and environmentalists really kicked out about it. So that might be one to watch. It all depends on those details.
0: Yeah, there's, if there's one thing that um, environmentalists like and, and and also, I guess, planning professionals like is talk of further planning reforms. I'm sure that will go down well with some um, some listeners. Um, I mean, is, is there a sense, though, that Labour still doesn't have a lot to say on, on nature recovery specifically?
1: Mm, yeah, so this is where many green groups have have expressed frustration. So half of the section in this document called protecting the environment um, is dedicated to policies to tackle the sewage scandal. And that is a massive issue and, you know, it, Fair enough in some ways. Um, and you also have the repeated pledge to bring forward a Clean Air Act um, upholding WHO standards. But on nature, it's, it is all a bit thin on the ground. Wow. The document says Labour will consider expanding national parks and creating new ones and ensure the public have the right to experience, enjoy and explore nature. Adds that Labour will also ensure that there, are, that there are sufficient responsibilities and protections to manage and conserve our natural environment for all. But there's no, there's no real detail more than that, really. There's sectional section on farming, which states that farming and environmental protection are complementary priorities, and they will ensure both are supported. Um, but yeah, not much more meat, if you like. The chief executive of the wildlife and countryside link was particularly unimpressed. He said, this is Richard Benwell, he said that vague promises to be nice to nature simply won't suffice from any party. Um, and he kind of pointed out that in the conversation on climate people look for specific decarbonization commitments science-led things fully funded plans and the same needs to be true for the biodiversity crisis and you know he, what he said and he's he's kind of representing what a lot of big nature ngos feel like there needs to we've got these legally binding targets to stop the decline of nature every party should be setting out specific policies to deliver on that um we don't we don't really have that in this. It's a very early draft. It's not final, but there'll be some unhappy lobbyists in some of the UK's Nature NGOs this yeah.
0: week. OK, well, I guess we'll um, be we'll be at the Labour Party conference later this year. And if we haven't heard anything by that point, then we'll be trying to prize the detail out of them when they're in Liverpool later in the year. For our final Big Green News story of, of this week, it's been a, a long Big Green News section, thanks to the government, I guess, um, but, but news news reached us earlier in the month of a, of a first-of-a-kind prosecution, um, and this saw the, the owners of a shooting estate in the Peak District National Park being successfully prosecuted for carrying out illegal burning within a site of special scientific interest, and this was the first such prosecution since regulations aimed at better protecting peatland from such fires were introduced in 2021. Pippa, could you please tell us a bit about what the owners of the shooting estate did wrong?
2: So basically, under the 2021 regulations that you mentioned, it's prohibited to burn specified vegetation on a designated site of peat that is of a depth of more than 40 centimetres. So this is known as deep peat, um, unless a licence has been issued by the Secretary of State. Um, and following reports from the RSPB, the DEFRA investigations team visited this site and found that there were 30 burns on the hillside within the SSSI um, and all of the 15 samples taken were found to be on peat that was greater than 50 centimetres, so known as deep peat. Um, and the estate was subsequently charged with six counts of breaching these regulations um, and undertaking the burning of deep peat without a licence.
0: And, and what was the, the level of the fine of I understand it's quite low and, and some commentators haven't responded particularly well to it.
2: So the estate was fined a total of £2,645, which was broken down into £300 for each offence, costs of £125 and a surcharge of £720. Um, and a, the Environment Minister Trudy Harrison welcomed the size of the fine and said that the verdict sends an important message that we will do all we can to protect our largest store of carbon. Um, but there have been some kind of criticisms. So Ruth Tingay, who is the author of the blog Raptor Persecution UK, wrote in a blog post on her website that the the fine was in quotes, pathetic and can't possibly be seen as a deterrent. Um, but she did say that she welcomed the publicity around the prosecution and said that this has been quite prominent. So obviously two different opinions there. But yeah, I think either way, in the grand scheme of things, it is quite a low, a low fine.
0: Okay, thank you, Pippa. I'm just going to read a statement from the shooting estate involved. Um, A spokesperson for Dunlin Limited said, The estate management deeply regrets this contravention of burning regulations. We take our land management responsibilities very seriously, and burning consents had been granted to us previously for the land in question. We genuinely misunderstood the updated regulations, and this led to these errors. We have already implemented measures to ensure such an error will not happen again. That brings this week's Big Green News section to a close. Thank you to Pippa and Tess. We'll be back next week with a lowdown on the latest environmental developments. And if you'd like to hear anything about the stories we've been talking about today, then please visit our website, endreport.com. Now to our deep dive section where we're talking politics. Endreport's James Ajipon Parsons recently caught up with Ruth Chambers, Senior Fellow at Greener UK, and found out what she would do if she replaced Therese Coffey as Defra Secretary of State. This interview was recorded ahead of the recent rule bill developments, and it's obviously a fast moving situation. Over to you, James. So, Ruth, I'd like to start
4: asking you about the implications of the retained EU law bill, which is this bill introduced to revoke and repeal EU-derived law in the UK. It's a lot of policy, it's a lot of jargon, but what's at stake here? For the environment?
3: There's a huge amount at stake because basically this bill puts environmental laws at risk that cover really important protections from a range of things like water quality, air quality, nature protection, levels of chemicals in toys. Um, the, the range is enormous and the bill is very open-ended. It's been described by one House of Lords committee as hyperskeletal. The Regulatory Policy Committee, which is the independent body that's meant to look at impacts of legislation before they're passed, gave this bill a red rating because basically the powers are so open-ended they could be used in any which way that any future government wants. So it's that risk of huge uncertainty of laws either being dropped entirely or changed behind closed doors that we and many other uh, people across civil society are worried about.
4: And there was an iteration which first came out. There was this this figure about four thousand laws potentially being dropped or axed. And now I think the the latest news is that there it's being dropped to eight hundred potentially pieces of legislation. And there there is this sunset clause, which by the end of this year we were going to just drop it all and, and storm out the room, as I understand it. That is now being dropped. Um, potentially, that is that good news only 800 pieces of legislation are going to be axed? It could be good news, but I think we're
3: waiting to see that in official government confirmation. All we have at the moment is speculation in the media, which looks like it's been briefed in, but is that the official government position? We don't know. The bill itself is due back in the House of Lords in mid-May, so on Monday the 15th of May, peers will come back to the bill and start interrogating it in detail, look at proposed changes, probably vote on some of those. But the week before that, the government could itself put some of those media um, rumours into its own amendments and change some of the ways in which the bill could work. And that's something that we'll be looking out very closely for. In terms of the numbers of laws that could be affected... Again, we don't know. The government's been collating and counting these laws in a dashboard, and that dashboard was updated in January, um, and it gave DEFRA, the Environment Department, the lion's share of these laws across Whitehall. So DEFRA now has over 1,700 pieces of retained EU law that, that are covered by this bill, but we haven't got any certainty or clarity as to how many of those laws would either be scrapped, how many would be retained or how many would be amended? And if it is only 800 to be scrapped at the end of this year, how many of those would be environmental laws? So the government's still got an awful lot of questions to answer. And that sunset that you mentioned, which is the date 31st of December, 2023, by which all decisions on these laws, which as you say, number around 4,000 would have to be made, that's placing a huge burden on civil servants to make sure that they found all of the laws, um, first off, because if law isn't found and is found after the sunset, it's basically a guillotine, it would disappear forever. And the only way it could be brought back is by a new act of parliament. Um, So, you know, the sunset is putting a lot of pressure to find the laws in the first place, but also to decide what to do with them. And many of these laws are very complicated, very long and very technical. So to do this job properly within that um, short window that the government had given civil servants seemed impossible. So if there is more time to do that, that would be welcome. But the bigger worry for us is in the back end of the bill. And it's these open ended powers that regardless of if laws are saved um, at the end of this year or beyond, the government could come in the future and change them very easily.
4: So that's almost like a secondary legislation type approach where you don't need to go to parliament.
3: Yeah, you would go to Parliament because all secondary legislation, it goes through Parliament as well. But it's um, it's not scrutinized in the same way that Acts of Parliament are. Um, and basically, uh, the, the, there would be a little bit of scrutiny, not very much, um, because uh, the, the powers could be exercised through things called statutory instruments. Um, and it, basically, unless parliamentarians want to vote something down, the SI would pass. So it's a bit like, pressing some kind of parliamentary nuclear button, and they're not going to do that apart from in the most unusual of circumstances. Um, There's no requirement for public consultation. So people affected by these laws, whether they're members of civil society or businesses um, or trade unions, for example, wouldn't have a right or an obvious way to influence the detail of what the government's changing.
4: Are there any particular... EU directives or pieces of legislation that you're particularly worried about when it comes to rule, like, you know being chucked out the window.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, from the environmental perspective, then um, it's, it's first of all, the length and the breadth of um, the retained you law that is covered. So it covers every single aspect of the environment that you can imagine. Um, and many of these laws may not be that well known. So, so it's the kind of the lesser well-known laws that are functioning somewhere um, that could be important to uh, members of communities, businesses, that sort of thing. But in terms of the big ticket items, then there are probably three that I'd highlight. One is the Habitats Directive, so laws that protect important sites and species, which we know previous governments have sought to amend because uh, they viewed them as a a barrier to development, and that's a worry because they, they basically protect nature from harm. The second one is REACH, which governs chemicals and controls the levels of chemicals that are allowed in substances and the environment. And the third are two watery ones. So water, obviously, the biggest political issue on the environment at the moment. So two water laws, the Water Framework Directive and the Bathing Waters Directive are also covered by rules. So those are just a handful of examples. And another reason why we would be worried about the changes to those sorts of laws coming via rule is um, there's a clause later on in the bill, clause clause 16, and that would mean that any changes to these laws could only be done in a regressive way, so burdens couldn't be increased. And then the bill goes on to define what the government means by burdens, and these include financial cost, um, administrative inconvenience, profitability. So it's hard to see how laws that protect water quality, air quality, um, and nature could be improved by using these powers in the bill
4: moving slightly away from reach um there does seem to be a lot of environmental policy coming down the line and i'm sure you've had you and your team have had to scramble and deal with what defra is saying and other departments there doesn't seem to be a lot in the way of implementation and i wondered uh, where you think the biggest gaps are with some of these wonderful targets that defra has been announcing potentially on water or land or improving biodiversity and actually, it's implementation and the reality of what the challenge ahead, where you think the biggest gaps are?
3: So it's a great question because we now have a new environmental governance framework through the Environment Act that the government passed in 2021. That's put in place a targets framework. Um, we wanted that to be more ambitious, but it is what it is. And we now need to make sure that those targets to improve species abundance, air quality, uh, resource efficiency, et cetera, are delivered. And that's really what the government now needs to focus on is is delivery. And that is only going to be working well if there's a team approach. The government can't do it all. So it needs to work collaboratively in partnership with businesses, with farmers, with charities that own lots of land um, like the National Trust. So opening up to ensure that there's a collaborative partnership to help drive those targets forward would be the first thing I'd single out. Um, And the other thing is to make sure that the public is behind these targets as well. So there's plenty of information that comes out about why they're important, what's needed, how we can all play our part. I think that would also be important and making sure that it's not just DEFRA that's driving the target's um, ship, if you like, it's the whole of government. So Treasury, through its resourcing plans, other departments that are also important to making sure that the targets don't just remain theoretical, but actually are delivered in practice.
4: So one of the things we have mentioned um, is UK reach. The government is kicking that down the road for now. Is it a case that there's too much going on? Or is that a particularly difficult situation when it comes to chemicals and, and the EU law that's coming out from them? Could you could you talk to me about that?
3: Yeah, I mean, ke- chemicals is a really important and often overlooked area. Another thing the government is doing is preparing a chemical strategy. Now there's no p- public consultation on this, which is something that we might want to come on to more broadly. This will set the direction of travel for chemicals in the future. So it's going to be a really important document. So making sure that that sets some really clear parameters um, and ensures that we don't fall progressively behind what the EU is doing. On REACH, the government's given itself some more time to um, try and solve this issue of registration. I think in the longer term, though, there's going to come a time where a future government will have a choice Do we want to align more closely with what the EU is doing to save cost, time and money and to ensure that um, the public has access to good safety data and basically that our chemicals system is the strongest and the safest it can possibly be? Or do we want to carry on in the direction that we're going in, which is a UK um, bespoke system where we're never going to have the level of resource that we have through EU reach? So I think that is a dilemma that will need to be grappled with sooner rather than later. But in the short term, let's make sure that the UK government's chemical strategy actually has some ambitious goals for reducing and removing harmful chemicals like PFAS, for example.
4: There was no consultation on the chemical strategy. Are they allowed to do that? Really interesting
3: question. I mean, yes, because there's no law that says a government must consult on um, making new policy. But, of course, it's best practice and policy is better if you involve people that may be affected by it in helping shape it. And also um, more objective views can be sought from people outside government. So on the chemical strategy, I understand it's one of those policies that's caught up in say the DEFRA backlog. So DEFRA had a lot of things that were falling behind schedule. The new sector state came in, wanted a clean sweep and to ensure that the government got back on track with delivery of its environmental program, which is to be welcomed. However, an unintended casualty of that seems to be that in some instances, public consultation and engagement is having to take a back seat. The chemical strategy is one example. There there is a process for engagement, but it's not kind of full public consultation. The integrated plan for water that the government published a few weeks ago, that again was also produced without structured engagement and consultation. And if we look at the environmental improvement plan, which the government published in January, in the end, that also had to be rushed to meet a legal deadline. You know, we welcome the plan, there's a lot of good policies in it. But there wasn't consultation on, say, for example, the interim milestones that the government's put in place to make sure its Environment Act targets are delivered. So I think it's definitely time for a reset and for government to remember that good policymaking depends on involving the public um, at all stages, actually.
4: And if I could ask you then finally a hypothetical question. You've been put in charge of DEFRA as a Secretary of State what environmental policy would you prioritise for your first six months, say?
3: That's a great question. I I mean, I think for me, it would be um, looking at what steps and actions we need to put in place to solve the nature crisis. Um, Nature is sometimes um, appearing to be a sort of, second cousin to the climate crisis. It doesn't have as much cross-government attention. It doesn't have as much resourcing. And actually, of course, they are two sides of the same coin. Effective action on nature will help tackle um, climate chaos and vice versa. So I'd want to look at everything the department was doing and to check whether or not that was driving hard enough to solve the nature crisis. But I'd also want to look to my colleagues elsewhere in government and to check that legislation that they were published is nature-proofed, and to ensure that they have the right outlook and the right culture to think nature from the outset. And actually, if we're talking about the next six months, I would soon have a really important new tool in my back pocket, and that's the environmental principles policy statement, another part of the new post-Brexit governance framework. It's a statement that all government ministers from whatever department will have to Take account of when they make their policy. And the duty that will make that go live um, will happen on the 1st of November of this year. So, equipped with that new policy statement and equipped with my newfound departmental um, entire focus on nature, that's what I would hope to focus the next six months on.
4: Ruth, thank you for coming into the Eco Chamber.
3: You're welcome. Lovely to chat.
0: Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Eco Chamber. Thank you to Pippa Neal, Tess Colley, James Agypon Parsons and Ruth Chambers. If you're interested in hearing more about any of the stories we've been discussing today, please head over to endreport.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and we'll see you next time.